And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is a Ken Hudnall show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's June the 29th, 180th day of the year. 185 days remain to the year's over with. It's Hug Day, National Work From Home Day, Central Province Day, Ido Gorban Day, Fisherman's Day, International Autonomy Day, International Day of the Tropics, International Mud Day, National Almond Butter Crunch Day, National Bacon Burnt In Day, National Bomb Pop Day, National Camera Day, National Diesel Belly Day, National Fred Day, National Gordon Day, National Guy Day, National Handshake Day, National Nash Day, National Waffle Iron Day, St. Peter and St. Paul Day, Seychelles Independence Day, and St. Peter's Day. Now, let's see. In 226 A.D., Kyle Rui succeeds his father's emperor of the Kingdom of Wei. 1149, Raymond of Poitiers is defeated and killed at the Battle of Inah by Nur ad-Din Zangi. 1194, Severus crowned king of Norway, leading to his excommunication by the Catholic Church and the resulting civil war. 1444, Skanderberg uh, defeats an Ottoman invasion force at uh, Torviol. 1457, the Dutch city of Dordrecht is devastated by fire. 1534, Jacques Cartier is the first European to reach Prince Edward Island. 1613, the Globe Theatre in London, built by William Shakespeare's Playing Company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, burns to the ground. 1620, English Crown bans tobacco growing in England, giving the Virginia Company monopoly on exchange for tax of one shilling per pound. 1644, Charles I of England defeats a parliamentarian detachment at the Battle of Corpredi Bridge, 1659, Battle of the Ukrainian armies of Ivan Vilovsky defeat the Russians led by Prince uh, Trubetskoy, 1764, one of the strongest tornadoes in history strikes uh, Waldig in Germany, kills one person, leveling numerous mansions with winds estimated at over 300 miles an hour. 1786, Alexander MacDonald and over 500 Roman Catholic Highlanders leave Scotland to settle in Glengarry County, Ontario. 1807, Russo-Turkish War. Admiral Dmitry Sinovan destroys the Ottoman fleet in the Battle of Athos. 1850, autocephaly, officially granted by the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople to the Church of Greece. Now, autocephaly... Is the status of uh, means um, property of being self-headed, 
Here's the status of a hierarchical Christian church whose head bishop doesn't report any higher-ranking bishop. You normally find this term in Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox churches. It uh, is just another step um, in reaching um, communication with the Almighty. 1864, 99 people, mostly German and Polish migrants, are killed in Canada's worst railway disaster after a train fails to stop for an open drawbridge and plunges into the Riviere Richelieu near St. Hilary in Quebec. 1874, Greek politician Charles Tricoupis publishes a manifesto in the Athens Daily Caroy entitled Who's to Blame? Leveling Complaints Against King George. He's elected Prime Minister of Greece the next year. 1880, French, uh, France annexes Tahiti, renaming the independent kingdom of Tahiti as uh, Establishments de Francois de La Ocheine. 1881, in Sudan, Muhammad Ahmad declares himself the Mahdi, the Messianic Redeemer of Islam. 1888, George Edward Garod records Handel's Israel and Egypt down the, to a photograph cylinder, thought for many years to be the oldest known recording of music. 1889, Hyde Park and several other Illinois townships built to be annexed by Chicago, forming the largest United States city in the area and second largest in population at the time. 1915, the North Saskatchewan River flood in 1915 is the worst flood in Edmonton history. 1916, British diplomat turned Irish nationalist uh, Roger Casement sentenced to death for his part in the Easter Rising. 1922, France grants one square kilometer at Vimy Bridge freely and for all time to the government of Canada for free use of the free use of the land exempt from all taxes. 1927, the Bird of Paradise, the U.S. Army Air Corps Falcatron motor, completes the first trans-Pacific flight from the mainland U.S. to Hawaii. 1945, Soviet Union annexes Czechoslovak province of Carpathian Ruthena. 1950, Korean War, President Harry S. Truman authorizes a sea blockade of Korea. <coughs> In 1952, the first Miss Universe pageants held, Army Kusela. From Finland wins the title in this universe, 1952. 1956, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 is signed by President Eisenhower, officially creating the United States Interstate Highway System. 1971, prior to re-entry, following a record-setting stay aboard the Soviet Union's Soyuz 1 space station, a crew capsule of the Soyuz 11 spacecraft depressurizes, killing the three cosmonauts on board. George A. Dubrovsky. Vladislav Volkov and Viktor Patsayev are the first humans to die in space. 1972, Supreme Court rules the case of Furman v. Georgia, arbitrary and consistent imposition of the death penalty violates the 8th and 14th Amendments and constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. 1972, a Corvair CB-580 and de Havilland Canada DH-6 Twin Otter collide above Wake Winnebago near Appleton, Wisconsin. 13 people are killed. 
1974, Vice President Isabel Perón assumes powers and duties as acting president of Argentina while her husband, President Juan Perón, is terminally ill. 1974, Mikhail Baryshnikov defects from the Soviet Union to Canada while on tour with the Kirill Ballet. 1976, the Seychelles become independent from the UK. 1976, also saw the Conference of Communist and Workers Parties of Europe convene in East Berlin. 1987, Vincent van Gogh's painting, the La Ponte de Tranquillité, is bought for $20.4 million at the auction in London, England. 1995, Space Shuttle Program, STS-71 mission. That was uh, the shuttle Atlantis docked with the Russian space station Mir for the first time. 1995, the Sampung Department Store collapses in the Seocho District of Seoul, South Korea, killing 501, injuring 937. 2002, naval clashes between South Korea and North Korea lead to the death of six South Korean sailors and sinking of a North Korean vessel. 2006, Hamden versus Rumsfeld. The Supreme Court rules of President George W. Bush's plan to Try Guantanamo Bay detainees and military tribunals violates U.S. and international law. 2007, Apple Inc. releases its first mobile phone, known as the iPhone. 2012, Derecho sweeps across the eastern U.S., leaving at least 22 people dead and millions without power. And in 2014, Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant self-declares its caliphate in Syria and northern Iraq. All right, we have been talking about the Kennedy hit list. Most people think with the assassination of President Kennedy, horrible as it may be, that was pretty much it. But over the next 10 or 15 years, over 50 witnesses died of mysterious circumstances. An accidental karate chop to the throat for one. Um, An unusual amount of suicides. And of course, whenever anybody affiliated uh, dies, there's an immediate um, determination that it was uh, suicide. One of those involved was actually Jimmy Hoffa. You know, the, the FBI was determined. They're going to put uh, Hoffa in jail. Um, but he was almost untouchable. He was so powerful. Eventually, the FBI pressure that was put on Hoffa in the years... Uh, after the assassination, came up with enough to get him sentenced to prison. So he installed Frank Fitzsimmons into the leadership role of the Teamsters while Hoffa uh, was in prison. Fitzsimmons, he thought, was loyal, reliable, and safe. Well, actually, it turned out not to be the case. Hoffa was given 13 years, but he only served five because he was pardoned by President Nixon. And the pardon was uh, 
married, for lack of a better term, to a string of huge cash payments to Nixon's re-election campaign. Those cash payments were made to uh, creep the committee for the re-election of the president. And in that same manner, suitcase stuffed with cash handed over to the Attorney General of the U.S., uh, Hoff also engineered a way around the clause in the pardon that restricted him from running for president of the Teamsters again. Next thing you know, he challenged Fitzsimmons for the presidents. The rank and file members right behind him, as usual, it looked like it was his for the taking. Well, a war ensued for leadership of the Teamsters. Hoffa wanted to be president again, made it clear he was going to do anything he had to do to get it. But the mob was comfortable with Fitzsimmons, who could be easily controlled. They feared the Hoffa's return might cause problems. Threats were made and control was contested. And nobody appeared safe. A meet was set up to make one last attempt at peace, and Hoffa agreed to meet in a public place with the head of the um, what he called the enemy faction of the Teamsters, read by Tony uh, Provenzano, also known as Tony Pro. The uh, meeting would be brokered by a friend of the both of them, who uh, they both had come to trust. That was uh, Tony Jack, as he was known, Anthony Giacoloni. The meet was set for 2.30 in the afternoon on a Wednesday, at the Red Fox Restaurant just outside of Detroit. After the lunchtime crowd uh, had thinned out, there was still enough people to make it a safe meeting place. Officially, Hoffa was last seen outside the restaurant shortly after the appointed time. He uh, left uh, an outdoor phone booth, walked over to a car, and Parking lot got in, the car drove away. He was never seen again. With these highly explosive circumstances, he would never have gotten into a car with an enemy. So it was quite logically presumed he must have been lured into the car by the presence of associates that he trusted. Unofficially, we do know what happened. He called his wife from the payphone. He always used payphones to see if his friend had called the, the house because his insurance was late. Frank Sheehan agreed to drive to the restaurant and be there with Hoffa. He was supposed to be there in a half hour prior to the meeting. The uh, Hoffa knew if he had um, Sharon and Jill Coloni there, he'd be safe. And Tony Pro, of course, had no intention of turning up for the meeting. He was back in Detroit in a public place making sure he was seen. Same was true for Tony Jack. It had been decided by higher forces in the mob it was time to take care of the Hoffa problem, as it was called. The um, Tony Pro was supposed to be sitting in the restaurant when the, the um, meeting took place. Tony Jack 
was getting a message at his health club in Detroit, and Tony Pro wasn't even in Michigan. He was in New Jersey at his union hall playing gin rummy. The FBI, of course, was keeping an eye on him. The hit on Hoffa was sanctioned by Detroit um, Chicago monsters. The man that made the hit, Frank Sharon, explained that uh, New York turned it down. They didn't sanction it, but they didn't oppose it either. They took uh, the attitude, if you did it, you're on your own. Couldn't have been done without Detroit's sanction because it was their territory, and same for Chicago, because they were close by, and there was a lot of tie-in between Chicago and Detroit. And Frank Sheehan, who'd worked uh, closely with Hoffa on many occasions throughout the years, was his close and trusted friend. But he really didn't have any choice. He knew being told to make the hit on Hoffa meant, Hoffa meant he was actually being uh, having his life spared due to his close connection with Russell, the old man, uh, Buffalino. And putting out a contract on Hoffa meant that the mob had decided to go with the Tony Pro faction in the battle to control the Union. So they were cleaning house, and typically, since Sharon was a Hoffa man, that meant he'd get his house uh, cleaned as well if he didn't cooperate. Offer him the hit was sparing his life, so Sharon's defense, uh, if he declined or even made Hoffa aware of what was coming, he'd have been a dead man too. And he was one of the top hit men in history. He shot Crazy Joey Gallo, head of the Gambino crime family in New York City in 1972. Sally Bugs, Brigo on the New York Street in broad daylight, and a number of other high-profile hits for the mob. Now, deadbed, deathbed confessions carry a lot of weight in the court of law because the the confessor can probably be, can probably free their conscience without fear of reprisals. And when Sharon was during the end of his life. He came clean to attorney Charles Brandt, who recorded every word of it. Got his orders for the hit directly from Russell, the old man Buffalino, and he explained very specifically how the hit was made. After describing exactly how and where he drove, street by street with precise details and descriptions, he also conveyed the, the broader context. He said the whole thing was built around a wedding. Bill Buffalino, his daughter, was getting married on Friday, August 1st, 1975. That was two days after Hoffa disappeared. People were coming in from all the mafia families around the country, and there'd be over 500 people there. And because of the wedding, Jimmy would be inclined to believe that Tony Pro and Russell Buffalino would be in the Detroit area so they could meet with him in the afternoon of the day he disappeared. The thing with Tony Pro wanting his million-dollar pension was a decoy. They used a pension beef to get Jimmy to come to the meeting. car that pulled up was another part of the plan, driven by Chucky O'Brien, Hoffa's foster son, who still called Hoffa Dad. And it was a car familiar to Hoffa as well, the maroon Mercury that Tony Jack's son owned. Tony Jack was friends with Hoffa and knew the car well. type of car to be used for such a meeting because it wasn't flashing and just kind of blended in. Hoffa's foster son, Chucky O'Brien, and 
Sharon were going to be part of the bait to lure Jimmy into a car with Sally Bugs. That was Tony Pro's right-hand man. Not being told, he knew there was no reason for Sally Bugs to get into Chucky's car other than to keep an eye on uh, Sharon. Make sure he didn't spook Jimmy or not to get in the car. Jimmy was supposed to feel safe with Sharon in Chucky's car, so he'd go to the house with brown shingles and walk right in the front door with Sharon as his backup. So there were two people that Hoffa actually trusted inside the car, Frank the Irishman Sharon and Hoffa's stepson Chucky. If they weren't there, he'd never gotten in the car. According to Sharon, everybody being at ease was an important feature because Jimmy was as smart as they come at smelling danger from all his years and bloody Union Wars and knowing the people he was dealing with. He was supposed to meet Tony Jack and Tony Pro in a public restaurant in a public parking lot. Not many people change a public meeting place to a private house on Jimmy Hoffa, even with Sharon and Chucky in the car. The setup for the hit had to be picture perfect because Hoffa was a very cautious man under any circumstances, and particularly for this particular meeting. Going to Sharon, the psychology of the matter was played to perfection. They knew how to get under the man's skin, and Hoffa had been forced to wait for Sharon for a full half hour from two to two thirty because he was stuck waiting for the two thirty meeting. And then he waited his standard fifteen minutes for the two Tonys to show up. Waiting forty five minutes made Jimmy nuts like he was supposed to and confiscate for all the bull he had to had to put up with. He got uh, cooperative like he was supposed to. Sharon told Hoffa that McGee, their code name for Buffalino, was also known as the old man had changed the setup. Alpha was told Buffalino decided to broker the meeting and settle the score, hopefully. And McGee was waiting in a nearby house along with Tony Pro. They knew that Hoffa would buy that story because Buffalino was known nationwide as a formidable peace broker and for finding solutions to problems when possible rather than simply having somebody shot. And Sally Bug said his friend wanted to be at the thing, there at the house, waiting. They knew Hoffa seeing Sharon in the passenger seat would uh, make him more likely to get in the car. Um, seeing Sharon, uh, Hoffa instantly would believe Buffalino was already in Detroit, sitting around the kitchen table at a house waiting. And... Uh, There would be an explanation for the sudden last-minute change in plans in Jimmy's mind. Russell Buffalino was not the man to conduct a sit-down in the public place because he didn't like the Red Fox. Buffalino was old school, a private person. He'd only meet you in public in places he knew and trusted. And out of respect for the old man, Hoffa basically had to go along with the new setup. In fact, Russell Buffalino was the final bait to lure Jimmy Hoffa to get into the car. If there's going to be any violence, anything unnatural, Russell wouldn't be there. Well, <clears throat> with that cover story combined with the presence of his stepson behind the wheel of the car and his old friend Frank the Irishman in the passenger seat, Hoffa got in the car. He drove a couple of minutes to the nearby house, had gotten as a loner. Um, previously set up arrangement where a person that was in with the mob lent them uh, short-term use of the house. 
Sharon's car, Ford was in the driveway, and there's also a loner. Stole a lot of long-term parking, so it wasn't traceable back to him. Another car was in the driveway, a brown Buick. Actually belonged to the cleaners, the the guys who uh, would be getting rid of the dead body and the shooter's gun who were waiting inside the back of the house. But as for appearances, it looked like the type of nondescript car Buffalino would arrive in. Um, in the intelligence community, as you might be aware, reference to cleaners is as assassins, but the mob refers to them as the people who deal with the dead body. So to half everything looked legitimate. Logical assumption was the old man is waiting inside to try to broker a deal between Hoffa and Tony Pro. Well, the house and the neighborhood were not threatening in the least. There's a place you'd want your kids to grow up in. The garage in the rear was detached, which was a nice touch. Now, it was asking Jimmy to go in that house in secret through an attached garage, and Sharon and Hoffa were walking right in the front door in broad daylight with two cars parked right there in the driveway. Well, Hoffa's stepson parked the car in the driveway, and Hoffa got out of the back, and Sharon got out of the passenger seat, and Hoffa walked into the house for the meeting, thinking that Sharon, the man walking right behind him, was his protection. Now, the moment Hoffa walked in the house, he knew what the situation was. When he saw the house was empty, nobody came out of any of the rooms to greet him. He knew right away it was a setup. If he'd taken his place with him, he'd have gone for it. Jimmy was a fighter. He turned fast, still thinking they were together in the thing. That Sharon was his backup, and Jimmy actually bumped into Sharon. If he saw the gun in his hand, he had to think he had it out to protect him. And at that point, Sharon shot him. Took a quick step to go around him and get to the door and reached for the knob and got, swipe, got shot twice at a decent range. Not too close to the the blood splatters back on you. Got shot in the back of the head behind his right ear. Well, the cleaners had put linoleum down in the vestibule of the house to make it easier to get rid of the blood. They were the Andretta brothers. They worked for Tony Pro. And they were there as cleaners to pick up the linoleum they'd put down in the vestibule and to do any cleanup that might be necessary and to move any jewelry and take Jimmy's body in a bag to be cremated. And Sharon also knew the FBI's initial claim on DNA was wrong. It claimed that hair found in the trunk of that car had been analyzed for DNA was a match to Hoffa. Well, Sharon knew better. He said Jimmy was never in the trunk, dead or alive. Later testing revealed that a hair recovered in the right passenger's side seat where Sharon put Hoffa was being DNA tested. In uh, September 7, 2001, the FBI revealed the hair was a match to Jimmy Hoffa. And further confirmation of Sharon's confession came from comparing the forensic evidence and Sharon's specific descriptions. After Michael Baden was nationally accepted uh, and respected forensic expert who was formerly chief medical examiner in New York City, after Baden examined the evidence, concluded that uh, Sharon's confession he killed Hoffa in the manner described in the, the book was supported by the forensic evidence, entirely credible, and solves the Hoffa mystery. Well, he was definitely murdered, even though the body was never found. Case had all the signs of a classic mafia hit. Hoffa did have sensitive knowledge that was highly pertinent to the Kennedy assassination. He was at the point in his life where he was talking too much and too publicly. But the hit appeared to have been unrelated to the 
or directly unrelated to the Kennedy cover-up. It was the result of Hoffa's maniacal quest to get his job as president of the Teamsters Union back at any cost. The murder was a result of an internal decision by mafia leaders. The uh, Sharon came clean, so we know a great deal about the case. The hit on Hoffa wasn't sanctioned by the New York Mafia, but they didn't block it either. It was, it was sanctioned by the Detroit outfit with the blessings of the Chicago crime family as well. FBI suspect list was right on target. The house was painted by Frank Sharon. Cleaners, according to Sharon, were the Andretta brothers, associates of Anthony Tony Pro from Vanzano, made member of the Genovese family out of New York. Bosses authorizing and masterminding both the hit and the cleanup were Tony Pro and East Coast crime boss uh, Russell Buffalino. The Sharon's defense, if he had warned Hoffa or had asked him not to make the hit, he would have also been murdered. Mafia tradition is being spared in exchange for making the hit himself. He also knew Hoffa was a dead man, whether Sharon was the trigger man or not. So as he put it, in the end, they made the decision to spare me out of respect for Russell. Well, according to the information that came to light, Hoffa's body was cremated by the Andrade brothers, who were the cleaners on the hit. East Coast crime boss Russell Buffalino whispered to his top hitman Frank Sharon, it won't be a body, dust to dust. Well, at the end of the day, Hoffa was murdered by the Mafia for internal mob reasons. But, um, according to Russell, what Russell Buffalino told Hoffa, there are people higher up than me that feel you're demonstrating a failure to show appreciation for Dallas. Well, so that's the solution to the vanished Jimmy Hoffa. Well, the next one on the hit list, number 47, was John Paisley, CIA officer. Shot in the head execution style. Diving weights were tied to his body and he was thrown into the ocean. In spite of that, the official verdict was suicide. But there were a number of inconsistencies. One of the most fascinating aspects of all contemporary history is the absolutely frantic search for the foreign intelligence agents described as a low employee known to exist at the highest level of UF intelligence at the height of the Cold War between the superpowers. And for almost 20 years, a quiet but ominous fear had haunted the corridors of the CIA the specter of a mole of an American official somewhere in the Appalachian lines of the CIA who's uh, really a Soviet agent planted by the KGB. Well, that fear turned out to be well-founded because it was learned that very sensitive information was being obtained by the Soviets in some unknown manner. So the search for the mole was on. According to one CIA source, there's a mole inside the CIA hierarchy. That means that Every particle of our intelligence is suspect and possibly contaminated. It means the Soviets have detailed knowledge of our verification capability and can circumvent it. Uh, it does change the world power balance. 
Well, nobody knew exactly who the mole was, and John Paisley, who was deputy director, was right in the thick of the search. Extremely sensitive information was known to be leaking out of the CIA and going directly to the Soviets, but nobody knew how they were getting it. And, just like in a movie, it turned out the mole was quite probably Paisley himself. He was one of the CIA's highest-ranking officers, serving as deputy director for the Office of Strategic Research. That high-level position made him uh, privy to a lot of secrets. Search for the mole was one of the highest priorities in the history of the U.S. intelligence. And James Angleton, the CIA's chief of counterintelligence, uh, became obsessed with finding out who the mole was. Well, veteran CIA officer Victor Marchetti testified Paisley had extensive knowledge about the Kennedy assassination was murdered during the investigation of the House uh, Select Committee on Assassination because he was about to blow the whistle. CIA memo stated that uh, the Coast Guard personnel found some papers dealing with the Cuban crisis on board his boat. Cowan intelligence official Richard Case Nagel revealed that Paisley was the Soviet mole the CIA had been trying to identify for years. Well, it's not yet clear if Paisley was assassinated by agents acting on behalf of U.S. intelligence or if Russian intelligence agencies assassinated him because they knew he'd been identified. But it is clear, in spite of everything to the contrary, Paisley was assassinated. He was, the kill shot was behind his left ear, and he was right-handed. No weapon, expended cartridge, blood, or brain tissue was found on board the boat clearly indicating the victim was killed someplace else and dumped into the ocean. Um, there was no sign that anybody fired a shot on board his vessel. No gun was found, no suicide note. Talked to a number of people that day in person and by uh, radio, and certainly didn't seem depressed or acting like anything was wrong with him. And he was apparently in the process of eating a meal when whatever happened occurred. Their investigations have included Paisley was murdered. Quite unreliable, unbelievable. To suppose that a person committed suicide by, by putting diving weights around their waist and jumping off a boat and shot themselves in the head before they hit the water. But that's what John Paisley would have had to do to even come close to the official government version. It's just not possible. Now, though the physical evidence defies... Uh, that conclusion, the police determined Paisley had wrapped two 19-pound weight belts around himself and jumped off his boat and shot himself in the head while in the water. You know, according to the official version, it had to be suicide. The real reason police concluded to, that it was suicide was because it was literally the only way the assassination could be officially um Explained. Until and unless further information comes to light regarding connections between Paisley and the FB, uh, JFK assassination, his murder clearly appears to be the result of his nefarious intelligence associations. You know, although some link Paisley to the Kennedy assassination through knowledge to which he was privy, his assassination appears uh, to be directly related to the issue of the high level mole in U.S. intelligence. CIA had previous an obvious motive. Paisley apparently turned out to be the high-level mole inside the agency. 
Well, the next one was Francis Gary Powers, August 1st, 1977. Cause of death was a helicopter crash. Official verdict, pilot error. He didn't watch his fuel. He's flying a news helicopter for a Los Angeles TV station covering a story on the fires in the area. That doesn't seem likely as experienced as he was. But there are a number of inconsistencies. He was an American pilot whose CIA U-2 spy plane was shot down while following a reconnaissance mission over the Soviet Union uh, causing the 1960 U-2 incident. Well, the U-2 incident of him being shot down mushroomed into a huge crisis to repeated international peace talks, extending and expanding an extremely expensive, protracted Cold War between the superpowers, leading many to speculate it was planned and executed for precisely that reason. Now, nobody questioned that he was a cool customer, calm, collected, and used to performing with perfect poise under intense pressure. When reporters asked him how high he was flying in his U-2 when he was shot down, he smiled and said, well, clearly not high enough. Therefore, his death bears close examination, especially because it relates to pilot error under pressure. Now, he was a highly decora decorated pilot, earning the Silver Star, the Distinguished Flying Cross, the CIA Intelligence Star, the National Defense Service Medal, the Prisoner of War Medal, and CIA's coveted Director's Medal for Extreme Fidelity and Extraordinary Courage in the line of duty. To put it plainly, if you had a problem in the air, he was your man. The guy you knew could get you out of it. Well, he was flying a Bell 206 Jet Ranger helicopter for a Southern California TV news station, and he covered some large fires in the area, August 1st, 1977, and he reportedly ran out of fuel and crashed his helicopter in the Sepulveda Dam Recreation Area. Now, a lot of folks speculated a pilot with the skills, of get, the skills of Gary Powers should be able to put the helicopter down with no problem at all. Lieutenant Colonel Craig Roberts was a very experienced, experienced helicopter pilot, and according to him, Powers, who was experienced and very professional, ended his life in a very incredible and not very believable way. Supposedly died in a helicopter crash after he ran out of fuel. At the scene, though, things seemed very much under control. Powers radioed Van Nuys Airport Control Tower. He was returning for fuel. Asked for a direct approach. Indicating to the news reporters after the crash he must have been low on fuel. Then radioed to KNBC Newsroom and advised that after he took on a load of fuel, he'd be ready for the next assignment. Newsroom told Powers he and his cameraman, George Spears, would probably be assigned to cover a brush fire nearby. Well, everything went to hell in the handbasket after that. As he approached the airport, something happened that caused him to lose control of the helicopter. And as any helicopter pilot can relate, engine failure for any reason is hardly the reason for a helicopter to crash out of control. Unknown to the general public is the fact that when an engine stops in a helicopter, it doesn't simply fall out of the sky. The pilot enters a maneuver called auto-rotation. By lowering the collective stick, which places the main rotor blades at a negative angle of attack, glides the helicopter back to earth, 
by using the spinning blades, driven by the upward flow of air as a parachute. A normal auto rotation gives a pilot at least 45 degree angle of glide and the Jet Ranger, a very forgiving helicopter, much longer range to find a safe landing area. Auto rotations are a totally controlled maneuver and every helicopter pilot practices them, many of them uh, being awarded a commercial helicopter uh, before they're awarded a commercial helicopter license. Well, according to uh, a number of um, CIA pilots and other helicopter pilots, Powers is noted as being a very safe pilot, and lack of fuel wouldn't be one of his weak points in flying the Ranger. His auto-rotation skills were exceptional, according to his flight reports and the FAA check rides. So the question becomes, how and why did he crash? According to Lieutenant Colonel Roberts, the true story of Powers' death might line a statement from one witness who told firemen at the scene he'd witnessed the crash and it appeared the helicopter's tail rotor came off. And that would be a more plausible explanation for the death of an experienced pilot. Tail rotor failure or catastrophic severance would make power situation much more serious than a mere engine failure. All helicopter pilots are trained to handle such an event with other emergency procedures. By maintaining his forward airspeed at 60 knots, he could have accomplished what's known as a run-on landing at Van Nuys. Never be known if he diagnosed his problem at the time of failure, and if he didn't, he might have encountered severe control problems if he slowed the aircraft to see what was wrong. Whether Powers knew anything of importance concerning the Kennedy assassination is really unclear, but his ties to the CIA, the U-2 projects at Asugi, Japan, where Oswald was based, and the fact he spent a a year in Russia while Oswald was in the Soviet Union might prove a clue. He was only 47 at the time. There was a suspicion that his helicopter had been sabotaged. Um, one CIA agent investigated specifically the crash and concluded it was sabotaged. He made the comment, I always believed the jet ranger was sabotaged involving the tail rotor assembly. That was a weakness of the Jet Ranger to begin with, making it the weakest point for sabotage. And there was a known fault of the Jet Ranger. Others called it the Death Ranger. As it was known in some circles because of the tail rotor failures on some early models of the Ranger. The Long Ranger was a larger, later modification of the Jet Ranger and the tail rotor assembly was strengthened and modified at that time. I witnessed it a crash, said he heard a popping noise, looked up and saw the back prop fall off. And that sounds just like sabotage, not running out of fuel. Then I witnessed reported a plop flying off also seemed to be substantiated by the final radio transmission I received from Gary Powers. TV4 just lost. Official explanation also sounded weak. They had to address the point of how a pilot has experienced his powers. Guy was shot down at 70,000 feet over enemy territory and survived to talk about it. Run out of fuel on a simple little news sortie. The official version also makes it sound as though Powers was desperately searching around for a safe place to land where there were no children who might have been harmed by his crash landing. There's some representative statements uh, what perceived uh, quandary as it 
where in a recreational area he might have landed. Popular with locals as a spot to exercise, play, and simply be outdoors. The park featured numerous facilities, including several baseball diamonds. But if you believe the official version, this experienced combat pilot never saw, who never, one more time, who never cowered under pressure, just couldn't find a place to land, not even on one of the baseball diamonds. At 12.35 p.m., he had to park in sight and flew the helicopter downward in an effort to crash land without injuring anybody. But at the last moment, he saw several teenagers playing baseball on the diamonds. So he intentionally banked to avoid children on the fields and crashed into an adjacent agricultural field. Well, according to a CIA agent, there's another possibility which had been mentioned in any of the accident safety reports. And that's called the main rotor stall. That equals a flat pitch collective forward blades at the flat pitch. But you have to maintain forward movement and glide speed. Normal auto rotation with collective down, uh, forward down all would be normal like a falling leaf unless something else happened that would impede that forward speed, such as a tail rotor coming off. At that point, the torque of the main rotors would take over the loss of the counteracting tail rotor and cause the aircraft to spin and lose forward airspeed. Well, that's final analysis. It's extremely unlikely a pilot as good as an experienced as Gary Powers would reach fuel critical in a news helicopter. And if he had run out of fuel, he's fully capable of putting a Bell 206 Jet Ranger safely down on the ground with zero fuel. And the conclusion of sabotage reached by two helicopter experts meshes with the eyewitness report. He heard a popping noise, looked up and saw the back prop, prop fall off. So the question is, what did he know about the Kennedy assassination? And it probably had something to do with Oswald, who he could easily have come in contact with. Well... Number 49 on our hit parade is Jim Reeves, country singing legend, internationally known star, known to millions of his fans as simply Gentleman Jim. He died in a plane crash. Official verdict was pilot error. In actuality, it was probably sabotaged, and there were a number of inconsistencies. Now, he was never included on the, the various lists of suspicious deaths over the years. He was used to making an entirely different type of hit list. But uh, information came to light that showed he should be included on this particular list. He did have a link to the Kennedy assassination, which from the standpoint of mathematical probability calculations alone would place him on the hit list. His connection to the Kennedy assassination was established by his biographer, Larry Jordan, when in Dallas, he and his band would perform at the Longhorn Ballroom, which was owned by Dewey Groom. Jack Ruby knew both Dewey Groom and Jim Reeves, and Reeves frequently saw Jack Ruby as well as Lee Harvey Oswald on the Dallas nightclub scene. Now, Reeves, Reeves, I can't talk, as is well documented, had an amazing photographic memory. 
It was of the type that people were stunned by his uncanny memory tricks and suspected it must be a magic trick of some kind. For example, a casual autograph seeker would come up to him and ask him for his autograph. And he'd ask her where she was from and what her name was and write her a line or two on that along with his autograph on a record she had bought. Years later, if he saw that person again, he'd recall that information, walk by him and say something to the effect, well, hi there, Doris from Wichita or whatever it was. And that person would be stunned. And frankly, who wouldn't? Now, from the point of view of the Kennedy assassination, keep note that his photographic memory and his band performed it in a big nightclub in Dallas the night before the assassination of Kennedy. The band traveled on to Amarillo the next morning, but for some reason it was never satisfactorily remained. He got hung up in Dallas and didn't travel with the band. Now, he was still in Dallas when the assassination took place. And it's not completely clear how he eventually caught up with the band. But after the president was shot and Oswald was arrested, the second that Oswald's face uh, flashed on TV, Reeves immediately told the group of friends he was with he knew Oswald had seen him. That point was quite noteworthy. He registered immediate recognition, telling his friends who were watching TV with him he was familiar with that man and had in fact just seen him recently. It was also apparent that Reeves was acting in a, as a high-level courier of some type, possibly in an intelligence uh, capacity. And while that may seem odd, it's not unprecedented. International stars can move in circles, others can't. It not have been the first time that one was used as an intel courier. Also closely hooked up with some military brass. According to Larry Jordan, he made various tours of the U.S. military and also had the uncanny knack of being able to get some of his band members furloughed to run schedule leave whenever it suited his fancy. That took some serious connections. He was also able to land at military airports and often did as a general aviation private pilot, which was heard of. He also insisted that his plane be watched 24-7, even at rural airports. One of the small airports that was established had to hire a special guard just to watch his plane. So you have to ask yourself what he was so concerned about. Well, he was a very good pilot in an excellent aircraft, a Beechcraft debonair. But he flew into bad weather, in fact, in a small craft that can bring any pilot down. But the thing about his death that uh, is suspicious from an investigatory standpoint is not so much the plane crashed. Even expert pilots can be brought down with flying in serious weather. It's not even a, a witness report that lends itself to the possibility to sabotage having brought down the plane. What is suspicious in this particular case, what transpired after the crash, the very strange developments, it was all too apparent for whatever reason the official search was diverted to an area entirely different from where the control tower said he had crashed. Apparently to allow some independent searches for its access to the crash site. And in a seemingly related aspect, there's a great emphasis placed on the briefcase that he was known to have put on the plane. Nashville, Tennessean reported in Sunday's edition that more than 2,000 people are in the search effort, including with 300 civil defense units, Metropolitan Police, Williamson County Sheriff's Officers, members of the Donaldson Citizens Band Radio Service, 
40 National Guardsmen, 60, 60 Airmen from Stewart Air, Stewart Air Force Base, Red Cross Rescue Units, served coffee and donuts, Jeeps, wagons, private cars were used in the search. There were 12 different airplanes and two military helicopters. They combed a 20-square-mile area. Well, the crash happened at 4.52 p.m. just off a of main thoroughfare that was busy with rush-hour traffic. And while it was still daylight, a search team assembled at the corner of Franklin Road. Uh, that's a main thoroughfare running north and south in Baxter Lane, which intersected it. It was established that Reeves definitely took a briefcase under that small plane in which he flew. And multiple witnesses verified that Reeves' briefcase was indeed taken under the airplane and never officially located in the wreckage. Or anywhere else for that matter. Established that it was an extremely high priority of the search team to locate that briefcase. Well, it was also established that the official search was intentionally diverted to a known false location so that the authorities could get to the crash site first. Well, when the search was eventually relocated to uh, retargeted re to the actual known coordinates of the crash, the briefcase is already gone. Premier Mims, a U.S. intelligence veteran, knew the plane was down because he actually heard it crash. But he didn't report this to the authorities for two days until he finally reported it to Bob Newton, another black ops guy. Newton was a veteran of Black Ops uh, in Southeast Asia for two years. He was in Laos and Cambodia before the Vietnam conflict exploded. He was credited with uh, finding the briefcase. He became the second important figure that a Jim Tree uh, crash saga to have worked for military intelligence. Therefore, what the, the crash instigated as far as priorities was a frantic search for that briefcase. And it seemed that too much emphasis was placed on finding the briefcase and not Jim Dreve himself. Top priorities should have been looking for survivors. And the crash site wasn't promptly secured by the FAA, and all there were police lines up, over 100 people assembled, moving wreckage before the investigation had even been concluded. Well, just days and weeks before, the crash. He'd been involved in some land deals of a suspicious nature. He was going off to a remote location to get a property to be sold for development. But the deal was with some very shady people, which was out of character for him. So-called properties uh, were investments that nobody in their right mind was seriously be interested in. So it raised a lot of questions. Why would a busy international star fly off to a different state to Look at property wasn't the least bit enticing was being touted by a suspected criminal who was out on bail. Well, it also strains credulity that rescue workers who assembled Friday night within sight of the woods never searched them. There's also a lack of documentation in federal agency files regarding this accident, even though paperwork on crashes... Uh, Far longer ago than Reeves was still available. Raises quite a lot of uh, questions. At the end of the day, there is a lot of belief among folks 
that uh, his plane had been sabotaged. And whatever he had in that briefcase had a lot of people worried. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll do one more segment on the Kennedy hit list tomorrow, and then we'll go to a different topic. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.